welcome. Pull up a seat, grab a cup, and get ready to share, listen, and learn. This is my favorite coffee story with your host, Aniko Samoji. You'll hear about the stories about coffee itself, the history, health benefits, recipes, and more, along with some personal stories inspired by coffee and the lifestyle. Now, here is Aniko Somoji. Welcome to my favorite coffee story. We have such a wonderful show today. We're talking about For the Love of Wine and Coffee. And before I introduce our very special guest, we have our Anikona Farm moment. I've received quite a few questions and about the farm and what else we grow at Anikona Farm besides coffee. And I thought I'd take a moment and share a little bit about Anikona Farm. Also, I received questions if we have any animals. So we grow some papaya and bananas and some avocado. And we do have a few pineapples. So it's uh, it's really fun with our tropical fruits here at Anikona Farm on the big island of Hawaii. In terms of animals, we have our kitty, Archimedes. We call him Archie. And uh, he's just, he's great kitty. He, we call him head of groundskeeping because he's quite a master mouser and we also have another kitty called Dino Stratus uh, we love to name our kitties Greek after Greek mathematicians he uh, he also is fondly known as orange kitty and uh, he's he's really a lot of fun and very social but other than that we have wild turkeys and pheasants and we do have an occasional wild pig some parrots that fly across they're beautiful this green color and we have some hens roaming so that's a little bit oh we will have an occasional mongoose as well so that's a little bit about Anikona Farm so let's get started and talk about for the love of wine and coffee we have a terrific guest joining us Lauren Mowry today she's the contributing travel editor at Wine Enthusiast she's also a freelance journalist writer photographer for USA Today and also Forbes Life, and she's a Master of Wine candidate, and she has an award-winning blog called Chasing the Vine. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lauren. We're glad you're with us. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me on your show. And may I just add, you've given me a little bit of tropical island envy. You have papayas (laughs) growing off trees. (laughs) That's fantastic. We do, Lauren. We'll hope you'll come and see us. We can have fresh papaya for breakfast with, with yeah, some Anikino coffee and fresh coffee. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> Lauren, you are an amazing travel editor at Wine Enthusiast, and we thought we would share with our listeners today all around the world about wine and coffee and how they intersect. And we thought we'd start, please, with some of your early days of your career, your growing up days and family times. Please share a little bit about those days. Yeah, absolutely. I um, People always ask where I'm from because I've been in New York for about 20 years, but they can tell that I, I don't, I don't, I didn't get the New Yorker accent. So um, <laughs> I'm actually from Ohio originally and Columbus, Ohio to be specific. Uh, I grew up in a suburb called Upper Arlington and I didn't really grow up with a family that was you know, eating haute cuisine or drinking fancy things or even really drinking wine. We were more like Diet Coke and green beans from a can type 
hopefully uh, <laughs> my parents are listening. Sorry for <laughs> sorry for divulging, but <laughs> um, but I had a grandmother, and I, I do attribute much of the my career path to her. Uh, she was a travel agent, and uh, she that was back in the era when agents actually had brick and mortar shops. And uh, in the summers, I would go to visit her and I would sit on the floor of her store and pull down all the glossy brochures, the pictures of Egypt and the pyramids and the Nile. And and in fact, that was the first trip I I planned with her. Um, But she took us on a lot of trips when we were younger and sort of planted the travel bug very early on. Um, I can remember as far back as like age three being in Palm Springs. And that's actually one of my first memories outside of Ohio. So uh, what, came with, what came with travel, of course, was uh, nice food, interesting food, different food. Um, we were in Europe a lot, Caribbean, uh, South America, and things like that. So my grandmother really sort of set me on that path. And then she happened to live in New York City or had a place in New York City, rather. So on the, in summers, I would go visit her. And coming from Ohio was dazzled by the bright lights of the city. So yes. I, she probably gets credit for me being in the travel business later on and actually spending the brunt of my mature life in New York City. So, um, but yeah, Ohio to uh, the University of Virginia, um, kind of jumping past high school there. That was in Ohio as well. And I went to school at UVA and I actually would say Virginia was where I first fell in love with wine. Um, Thomas Jefferson was a founding father, and he also was the founder of uh, the University of Virginia. And a lot of people know that he was quite an onophile, and he had a big wine collection, especially Bordeaux. Um, was a big fan. He was a big fan of, and there he actually tried to make wine right outside of uh, where you know present day this present day school is and was never very successful with it but his legacy endured and today the area of Charlottesville has lovely wineries and a lot of them and so when i was going to school we would spend sunday afternoons driving around and it was quite beautiful you know picket fences and white picket fences horses and rolling green vineyards and uh, kind of fell in love with, I have to say, the lifestyle. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, you learn as you get into wine later that wine is not glamorous, actually, <laughs> or at least the making of it, but the enjoying of it, you know, being at the winery, sitting out in the sun, on a patio, all that stuff. It was very different from growing up in a suburb, you know, in, in Ohio. Yes. So, um, yes. And, and then I remember the first, the first wine I had was actually at a winery called Jefferson Vineyards. And it was a Viognier, and it was the first time I had tasted anything that wasn't, you know, the kind of plonk that college kids pick up from the grocery <laughs> or whatever. And uh, it, it had this, like, really vibrant almond and, you know, at the time, I'm not even sure if I had the vocabulary to say uh, white flowers and, and stone fruit and peach. I probably didn't. But in my mind, I was thinking, wow, this, this is the first time I'm tasting something that's alive. It's lively. It's fresh, yes. it's uh, fruity, it's, it was so fascinating to me. And so I, you know, a lot of, you talk to fancy sommeliers and they always like to say, oh, my first wine was Cheval Blanc or something extraordinary, but mine was a Jefferson Vineyard Viognier, so. Oh, that's a great story, Lauren. And <laughs> I, 
I've actually seen that area near Charlottesville and the Thomas Jefferson Estate, and it's such a beautiful area and all those vineyards. And your time at University of Virginia must have been very, very special. And how you decided to pursue a degree in foreign affairs. Please share with us a little bit, Lauren, about maybe some of your favorite classes and maybe even a possible favorite coffee story as you were studying, please. Yeah, so uh, how did I get into foreign affairs? Well, I was. I think it, it, in a way it ties into my interest in the world at large. You yes. know, travel isn't just about being on the road. It's as much about understanding different cultures and other peoples and their histories and how it all interrelates. Um, so I think that was kind of the driving factor to find foreign affairs. I, I studied uh, Chinese history. I studied Russian history. I studied Buddhism as well. Um, my dad was actually inter- into Buddhism kind of growing up, and so a little bit of that rubbed off. And I didn't really have a great coffee experience um, until I got to New York. So in school, it was just sort of putting back the cups in order to get through exams and things like that. But um, it wasn't really until New York that I first tasted, I had that experience with coffee like I did with wine, where something tastes so lively and interesting and complex and nuanced at the same time. So, um yeah, I, unfortunately, I don't really have a great coffee story for you. No, <laughs> no worries. Well, you went on to do a law degree, and I, I think that's so interesting how you ended up studying then at the Fordham University School of Law in 2001. And yeah. tell us, yes, tell us a little bit I'm about still, I'm still paying that off. <laughs> <laughs> I, rem- well. I remember when I was, I was applying for law school, and I, I you know, I just got to New York, and I was there for a year, and People, people are, were giving me the advice I'm giving people now. It's hilarious, actually, if I think back. <laughs> yes. Don't go. There's too many lawyers. It's too expensive. Find something else you want to do. All that advice was given to me. But uh, I, my dad was a lawyer, and I came from you know some some lawyers in my family and some judges, and and uh, so it seemed kind of like a natural fit. And I also had uh, you know noble aspirations at the time. I was interested in international human rights law, um, environmental law, and I actually still am interested in those things today, um, particularly as we see the state of the environment around the world, actually. <laughs> but that's another topic for another time. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think it's I think it's fascinating, Lauren, sorry, that you became the editor of the Fordham University Environmental Law Journal, and you wrote your was, articles yeah. for that. And that is just so exciting. How maybe was that part of starting your love of writing by chance? Yeah, you know, I was actually a writer in as far back as elementary school, I think. In fact, my mom just called me yesterday because she's changing homes uh, and going and she's going through, you know, her, her kids' old stuff that she's now been toting around for, like, 25 years for going on. <laughs> um, yes. At what point does a parent get to dump the, <laughs> their kids' detritus from school? But anyway, it's sweet that she held on to it, and uh, she was going through some of it and reading back to me stories I had written and um, started back as elementary school and then some from middle school and some from high school. So uh, I actually mean to dig through some of them when I get back down there. But, um, yeah, some, some stories that I, I still recall to this day that I had written. And I remember my dad saying to me at one point, you know, you're going to be a writer in the future. I can just feel it. 
So I guess it was kind of setting me up for it in the long term. I was also always interested in doing travel writing and photography, and I took photography in school as well. Um, of course, that was back before we had DSLRs, and everything was <laughs> shoot and delete, shoot and delete, who cares, right? But <laughs> right. you had to be a little more, you had to be more careful with your film at the time, you know, uh, making sure you compose your shots, so you're just not wasting images. And uh, anyway, so that was always in the back of my mind. Travel writing, photography, and then when I got to college, interested in the wine, and then food, of course, comes with it. That's really what I wanted to do. The question is, how do you do it, and how do you afford, not just to live in New York, but just to live in America, really? You know, the U.S. has gotten quite expensive, yeah. um, more so now than, you know, 15 years ago when we're talking about um, my career getting started, but... In New York at the time, I mean, I, when I moved to the city, I, it's laughable now, but the first apartment I had, I had to share with uh, a roommate from school, and our rent at the time was, you know, 2600 and we thought that was appalling, and that same apartment now is like 6000 <laughs> So, wow. the point being, yeah, the point being, it's just, you know, life is expensive, New York's expensive, and actually, I'm sure as you know, that uh, the publishing world is not doing so well. So going from a law practice to <laughs> trying to write and take photos is um, not necessarily the most lucrative choice, but it is the most thrilling choice, if I could put it that way. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, sorry? I was just going to ask you, please, Lauren, what was it like being a Manhattan uh, litigator in New York? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, um, I, I actually wrote a story, uh, you know, talking about my experience in, in law. I, when I got out of law school, so I went to Fordham, and I, was, I had these noble aspirations, you know, I'm going to get into international human rights, international, the court, and, you know, I quickly found out that it's very difficult to to take that route unless you know people and I'm not from the Northeast. I'm not from New York. So, uh, right out of school, you've got rent, you've got, um, school bills, you've got to start paying off. So I just took a job and it ended up being in insurance defense litigation. Yes. It sounds as (laughs) when I tell people that pretty much their faces give me the response that (laughs) confirms (laughs) that they understand how terrible that is. Uh, it's basically like, two people on either side lying or fighting or whatever. And it's just, it's really soul crushing stuff. And I spent a lot of time in courtrooms just sitting there thinking like, don't these people have anything better to do than haggle over every last dollar and argue with each other? Um, it was, it was pretty, you know, it was, it was interesting. I learned a lot. I think, I think the skills I took away from being in law were writing, of course, because uh, being on the journal in law school and having to write pretty much um, constantly, and then interviewing people, because I took a lot of depositions for these cases. Right. And sometimes I took two, three, four, five depositions a week. So uh, that gave me a lot of skills in interviewing people, and that ends up being translatable to journalism. So a lot of people say, oh, you go to journalism school. And I said, no, I went to a very expensive law school <laughs> to get the same skills. But <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah. you know, I, I don't, 
begrudged the experience, of course. They got me to where I am. I like to think that because I hated it so much, I wanted to get out of it, and it forced me to pursue the things I was interested in. Absolutely. And Lauren, we would love to hear before we go to break, please, in a few minutes, about some of your favorite wine and coffee stories you started writing for the New York City paper, The Village Voice. Please share with us about that. Yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting that I ended up writing for The Village Voice because after I left uh, the practice of law, I got a job working at Gilt. And we some of the listeners may know what this company is, Gilt.com. It's an online sample sales site that has luxury women's and men's uh, apparel. But also, at the time, they were doing wine and food pairings. So I joined the group. This was my basically my first foray out of law. And it was me trying to figure out, can I get a foot in the wine world? And how am I going to do it? So when I took the opportunity, uh, I started reviewing wines, writing copy about wines, writing tasting notes, pairing with foods. And eventually, this little segment of guilt.com uh, didn't, didn't work out. So we all left uh, looking for other opportunities. And one of the girls who I'd, writ- who I'd worked with was the uh, food editor at the Village Voice. And I said to her, why do you guys have a food column, but not wine or not coffee when the uh, New York Times, when the Wall Street Journal also have them? So she's like, that's a good idea. Let me go talk to the editor. And within, I don't know, 48 hours, they came back to me and said, Let's do it. Let's have them, the column. So I, that was actually my first writing gig was for the Village Voice in New York City and two columns, one on wine and one on coffee. So fantastic. Uh, some of the early, early story. Sorry. That's just fantastic. But yeah, please share with yeah. us maybe a brief, a brief early story that's one of your favorites. Yeah, so I, I, one of my favorites was trying to understand why there's not better coffee in restaurants in New York or in a, around the world. But since I was in New York, right, for New York paper, we we're really focused on New York City. And I interviewed a number of people. And it's interesting that coffee is such an afterthought. Um, and only a few restaurants were actually, uh, like 11 Madison Park, were actually doing things like pour overs and Chemex and siphon and really high-end stuff with great quality beans. And so it, it was an early mission of mine to find the places that were doing great coffee to, it's almost like a disservice after having a, a wonderful meal to serve <laughs> instant True. coffee or, you know, I, I won't name any brand names out there, but <laughs> I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. So, yes. Uh, yeah, I thought that was fascinating, and, and then that led me to uh, explore hotels around the world that have interesting coffee programs, and some of them have uh, happened to be in coffee uh, origins, so Costa Rica, where I was recently, um, Belize, where I was a couple years ago. It's, it's just interesting to see how, how hotels are now improving their coffee game, and in fact, I just started a wine column for, the, uh, for wine enthusiasts on hotels that are also improving their wine problems. Because again, you have this great meal, but then you have bad coffee or you have a very pedestrian wine selection that comes from one, one importer that's easy, to, you know, easy for them to deal with and order from, but there's no imagination. So, so true. Uh, you know, every story begets another thing, which begets another thing. And it's, it's fascinating to continue the path and learn more. <laughs> 
Lauren, we're going to take a quick break. And listeners, please join us because we're going to be asking Lauren a little bit about how it's go- what it was like completing the Institute of Masters of Wine program in 2015 <laughs> and how she actually spent some time in South Africa in a winery right after the break. So please join us. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So, from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are listening to My Favorite Coffee Story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. We're having such a nice time with Lauren Mowry. She's the contributing travel editor at Wine Enthusiast a freelance journalist and photographer for USA Today and Forbes, and she's a Masters of Wine candidate, and she has an amazing blog called (laughs) Chasing the Vine, award-winning blog, that is. So we were just chatting Mm -hmm. with Lauren about her early days, how she ended up studying foreign affairs at University of Virginia, had always had an interest of writing, even since elementary school. She then went and got her law degree at Fordham University and uh, and all that. And she started then writing for um, the New York paper, The Village Voice, about coffee stories and wine stories. And we were just going to ask you, Lauren, about how you ended up completing the Institute of Masters of Wine program 2015 to 2018, and how that went. And you also went to South 
Africa in 2015 to work at the Paul Culver Winery. Please share about those experiences. You've got my history down better than I do. (laughs) Um, I was like, I don't remember what year I went to Africa. (laughs) You know, when you travel every like two weeks a month, it's hard to keep track of what day, one month, what even what year I'm in sometimes. Uh, Yeah, so... So I will just say the Master of Wine, I'm still in the program, and what it took to complete it is a good question, because I haven't completed it yet. (laughs) Uh, As we were speaking about the other day, it's a serious, long-term, expensive program that is basically the pinnacle of wine education, well-respected around the world. Only several hundred, hundred Masters of Wine in the world have ever passed this notoriously difficult exam. So why the heck am I taking it? Uh, <laughs> glutton for punishment, I guess. I, 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 I'm, I'm, a curi- I'm curious. You know, I, I love to learn. I've never quite stated uh, just finishing one thing and saying, okay, done, got my certificate. Now that's it. Nothing else to learn here. Um, by, by nature, journalism, writing uh, is a curious endeavor. You're always uncovering new things, meeting new people, new stories. And uncovering the complexities of the world, but which also, in a way, sometimes simplifies things. So yes. to better understand the things I'm working on, I feel like it's good to be uh, fully versed in those topics. I, I, I guess the point I'm saying is there are a lot of people who have tried to transition into wine or maybe coffee writing also, although that's a much smaller niche, but... Um, who don't really have much of a background in it and didn't take the time to learn it or understand it or be, you know, consummate wine professionals. So right. uh, for me, not coming from a wine industry background, I didn't grow up on a vineyard. I didn't have a dad who made wine or a mom who made wine. Um, it, it was imperative that I have a complete understanding of, of the full picture so, you know, let's say people, oh, that $8 Merlot, why isn't, why isn't that $40 bottle $8? Well, there's actually reasons behind that. <laughs> right. Um, and you need to understand why things cost what they do, the labor that goes into it, um, the work involved, how perishable these products are. And, and that helps explain to the consumer, who's your reader, uh, why things are worth what they're worth and why they should be interested in them and excited about it. So that's a long-winded way of saying I wanted to be ed- educated to the fullest on on the topic of wine. And it's funny to say it, it's a topic because there's actually five parts to this test. Um, understanding viticulture as though you're a grower. Uh, yes. Understanding winemaking as though you're a winemaker. And by the way, you could spend your whole life dedicated to any one of these two things. Um, the, the third part is understanding production, um, bottling, packaging, contemporary issues related to those things, you know, new packaging like Tetra packs and cans versus glass, uh, even regulatory concerns, international law, international shipping. <laughs> it's a massive undertaking. So it, it, the reason it's notorious is that because there's so much to know, very few people ever pass it. And there's about, I think the, ten, the pass rate's around 10%. It's also quite expensive because it's a self-taught course and you have a seminar you have to attend every year. And then beyond that, you're traveling to learn, you're buying wines, you're meeting up with a study group, which I, which I worked with every weekend on um, 
drove my husband crazy, but every Sunday morning we had a Skype call with uh, students from around the world. So people in Germany, China, England, Canada, we all got on a phone call every Sunday to review our work for the week that we had assigned the group. And every Monday I had a study group in the city uh, where we tasted wines. Now people say, ah, oh, it doesn't sound so bad. You're tasting Burgundies and Bordeaux. <laughs> and I admit it's, <laughs> it's not like studying for an accounting test. It is rather fun, <laughs> but yeah. you would be surprised how stressful <laughs> A wine exam could be, and I know that it sounds silly, but it's oh, I can <laughs> the imagine level the level of detail you need to know to pass this qualification is extraordinary. Um, and so, to your point, what does it take to pass it? Well, I'll find out in September. <laughs> I sat the exam for the first time uh, this past June, so I had been ta- I had been preparing for it for two years to sit the, first, the, the exam for the first time. You have three opportunities to take the exam to pass it before everything resets all over and you either have to apply again or just move on to something else with life. But um, So this has been my first time sitting it, and, and it's four days. And I also make the joke regularly that as a lawyer, I only had to take the bar exam for two days before I was a New York State licensed bar attorney. Uh, and was able, if I wanted, to defend people on death row. <laughs> that was right. at day two of this wine exam. There was still two more days of a wine exam. Oh. So I sometimes, I, I chide people that they're taking themselves a little too seriously. But uh, yeah. nonetheless, it is what it is. And I signed up for it. So, <laughs> um, And we yeah, wish so you well so, with that, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, you know, if I pass the section, I can... I'll continue probably next June. They only hold it once a year. So it really just depends on what I pass. You can pass a couple sections and only resit the other portions. But if you pass just one or two sections, you have to do it all over again. And uh, it's a lot. I took weeks off to prepare for it right before the test. Several weeks of only studying for this exam every day, morning, noon, and night, um, tasting wines at home, writing notes, uh, interviewing people who worked in different jobs in the wine industry. It, it's actually pretty fun if you don't have the pressure of the test. <laughs> yes. Because you learn, you learn so much about the industry. Like I could tell you about the Brazilian market, the Japanese market, the Chinese market, the Russian markets right now, even in you know, places like Angola. Uh, it's so the opportunity to have that breadth of knowledge is, is, uh, was a main reason why I wanted to take it. So we'll see what happens in September. I'll let you know. And whether I'll be oh. sitting again next year or, or moving on to the research paper. So it's not even done when you finish the test. <laughs> right. You still well, have a all research the best. Paper. All the best. Thank and you. We, uh, we know you travel quite a bit. And, of course, you spent that time in South Africa working at the winery. But I think it's fascinating how you've traveled to over two dozen countries just in the last few years. And how you've written yeah. articles about the various places. And, for example, the, the time you went to New Zealand and you wrote articles about Hawke's Bay and Waiheke Island and the wine there. Please share about some of your travels and also maybe if you had some favorite coffee stories in some of the different countries. Well, yes. And I love when 
coffee and wine converge. <laughs> yes. And in Australia and New Zealand, they finally damn do because <laughs> Europe, I'm sorry, they don't drink good coffee. I don't know what they're doing over there. Italy's reputation for being a coffee society is founded merely on the fact that they drink a lot of coffee, but they don't drink good coffee. <laughs> and funny enough, as we were talking recently about Finland, um, you know, they are heavy coffee users, but not necessarily interesting coffees. So when you have good coffee and good wine in one place, it gets me really excited. And New Zealand and Australia, they are killing it. Uh, there's fabulous wines down there. In New Zealand in particular, they're doing red Bordeaux-style wines in Wahiki Island and yes. in Hawke's Bay. They make fantastic Syrah that's very much like uh, Northern Rhone with the pepper and violet notes. Um, and then there's, there's just littered with cafes down there of excellent, high-quality espresso-based drinks. They're, they're more espresso-based down there than uh, filter coffee. And personally, I, I like to take my time with coffee. Uh, I don't want to just get it done in one shot and move on. And I'm, not, I'm a bit of a purist as well. I don't put milk or anything in it. So um, on one hand, it may be not my ideal coffee culture because I – would like if there was more pour overs available down there. Yes. But uh but you know, beggars can't be choosers all the time. <laughs> so um but yeah, great great coffee down there, great coffee culture. And uh, you know, every when you go to the winery, all the winemakers have great espresso machines and they're talking about their beans and where they got them from and it's really cool because it's it's fun to see them get into it as well. So uh Australia Thanks. also Melbourne in particular. So it, so there's a, uh, <clears throat> the Victoria area of uh, Australia is, has some of the greatest wines in the country. I'm sure people in other provinces would like to argue with that. But for me, there's got beautiful Pinot Noir, beautiful Chardonnays, cool climate stuff coming from uh, Yarra Valley and Mornington Peninsula. And Melbourne, of course, has fantastic coffee culture. There's some really interesting cafes there, too. Um, and actually, you mentioned South Africa, and I was surprised on my last trip there how uh, coffee has actually taken picked up there as well. So in Cape Town, there's at least three or four excellent coffee shops, and uh, Cape Town is not far from the Cape Winelands area, which to me is one of the most gorgeous places on the planet. I love South Africa for the beauty, for the history. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those countries that overcame such tragedy and it's still overcoming it, but in, in a mostly positive way. Obviously, there are problems. There are problems everywhere. But if you compare transitions for other countries out of terrible cultural uh, constraints from the past, yes. I think South Africa is one place that has, you know, made good strides. I can't say everything's great, as I mentioned. But, um, and so to see people working side by side and to see, uh, you know, people, locals, local communities involved in wine and there's several um, black South African winemakers now. There's a Zimbabwean uh, sommelier team that won an international sommelier competition and one of those guys is now making wine down there in South Africa it's just a thrilling place Fantastic. Uh, for, for those reasons. And then they also have good coffee. So. <laughs> and the they wine too. too. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, in fact, I'm going back to South Africa in a few months 
Um, I'm going to be over in Zambia and uh, Malawi. Uh, I'm going with a tour company called Black Tomato. And then afterwards, I'll be stopping in South Africa for a few days of wine country to catch up on what's new down there. So I'm so glad you touched on that and uh, some of your current projects. And Lauren, you know, your award-winning blog is a favorite by just so many people love your Chasing the Vine blog. And before we go to break, I've I've really enjoyed your Bubbles uh, Beyond Champagne article and how you've touched on, I know, touched on sparkling wine from England and Austria and South Africa included uh, in Italy and Germany in addition to France and, and Champagne. I thought that was such a great article. But I also was wondering before we have a couple minutes before we go to break, if you could just touch on that article you wrote about uh, can wine taste like love? Please share with us about that. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Sorry, which one was that? <laughs> I've um, written so many now. Can- yes, it, it was. Can wine which- taste taste like love? Oh. <laughs> yes. yes, yeah, that was an interesting. I thought you said canned wine. <laughs> like no, love. no. I'm like, I did an article on canned wine. And I did an article on love, but I'm not sure I've written about. <laughs> Love in a can, but that's a great idea for the next one. Love in a can. So, um, yeah, so can wine taste like love? That was really, it, it was, it came from a seminar that was held at the Master of Wine Week, uh, my first year, which is two years ago now. And this woman had done a chemical analysis of wines, uh, chemical analysis with um, microscopic um, cross-section, basically, of 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 wine molecules and found that wines that were made biodynamically as opposed to conventionally. So, or you could say organically if if listeners aren't uh, familiar with biodynamics, but it's basically an extended version of organics that includes a a holistic approach to the farm um, and some other things, but we won't get into that. But anyway, so her point was the wines that had been made biodynamically had hearts, (laughs) Okay. Little heart shapes in their um, in their molecular structure. So you know she wasn't trying to make a profound statement by that, but it was certainly fascinating to see how the structure was different based on whether the wines were um, chemi- uh, conventionally made or quote with love made organically. Oh, I see. Thank you for sharing that. And Lauren, when we come back after the break, we're going to talk a little bit more about your beautiful photography that you do and uh, a little bit more about upcoming travels and projects and how wine and coffee and food all intersect right after the break. So listeners, please join us. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So, from our heart to yours, 
Enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to My Favorite Coffee Story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. We're so glad you're with us. We're back. We've been having an incredible time with Lauren Mowry. She's the contributing travel editor at Wine Enthusiast. And we're talking about for the love of wine and coffee. And Lauren was just talking about how, you know, maybe can you taste in wine some love and that was really fun and we were also talking about how wine and coffee and food often intersect and we also touched on Lauren's award-winning blog Chasing the Vine and the articles that she writes and the beautiful photography. Lauren, we'd love to learn about your photography and how how your photography is just so beautiful and how you learn photography. Interest in photography, I think, you know, I never kind of put these two together, but I think it has to do with my love for traveling and maybe that story I told about growing up, uh, going to my grandmother's yes. and sit, sitting on her floor and looking at these beautiful brochures of gorgeous places. And I don't know, I just kind of made that connection right now. Maybe seeing those <laughs> beautiful landscape images uh, somehow struck a chord with me because I've always been interested in not just the words, but the images as well. So when I was in high school, was that was the first time I got involved in photography. There was um, We had a dark room at the school, so I did classes there. And uh, that, as I mentioned earlier in the show, that was before DSLR. So you were much more careful in co- composing your, your images. And I guess that early training kind of helped with uh, my eye. And today, you know, I, I shoot with a DSLR, but I'm, I, f- I feel like I'm taking time to make sure the shot is composed and that was something I learned very early on so I guess that's one thing oh, I see um I and I, I just love landscape photography because it's just it's beautiful places you know who doesn't want to look at a beautiful hill in Tuscany with a vineyard on it or um uh, yeah. Ansel Adams was a was a big fa- um, a big favorite in our household as well obviously we didn't own any but we had some of his posters. So I remember looking at those striking black and white images when I was younger and, uh, of, you know, the Western parks of the United States and just thinking at how beautiful the world is, um, yes. particularly because sometimes it can feel so ugly. And 
the things we do to it and the things we do to each other. And a beautiful image is somehow something that comforts you, reassures you, gives you hope. It's inspiring. And so, yeah, that's, I, I think that's kind of all wrapped into it. So after it I is. got to college, I got, you know, busy with other things. As a lawyer, I was always busy with other things. But uh, once I started pursuing wine again, and traveling, you know, I picked back up on the photography again and really started to hone in on the shots I was taking, um, getting a variety of images. And, and, and shooting for magazines and, and stories also requires you to get a variety of shots. You know, you're not just getting your friend in front of the Eiffel Tower. You have to get things that tell the story along with the words. So that really yes. informs the way I photograph as well, uh, looking for the story of the of the place. So if you're shooting in a coffee farm, you know, one of my favorite images is, and, and, and you see it, it's not that uncommon of an image for people to take, but holding the ripe red coffee cherries in yes. one hand. Um, Rachel Peterson, who uh, is the proprietor of La Esmeralda in Panama, where they have the most famous geisha coffees in the world. Uh, yes. that, that image is actually of her holding those cherries. So, to me, it's one of my favorite ones because it reminds me of the time I spent with her, her history. And she told me some stories of tragedy and hope at their farm as well. And also just how, how fascinating the story of the geisha is as well, like the evolution of that, that coffee variety and then how it became, you know, within 10 years of award winning and earning the highest auction lots paid ever in the world. So, um, for me, photography is not just something to put into the world, but it's also a reminder of where I've been and who I've met. So it's, it's also something just for me. You know, I take a lot of images I never put out anywhere, but I look at them <laughs> myself just to say, hey, I've been there. I remember that. And another thing I use it for uh, is also to document the stories that I'm writing so that later on, honestly, this is a secret, but it's not anymore because it's on the radio show, but uh, if I just get lazy writing notes... <laughs> I take a lot of photos just to be like, oh, yeah, remember, now I can describe it because I can see it. Yes. <laughs> so it, it, serves a, it serves a lot of purposes. But <laughs> Your photography, Lauren, and your writing really come together to tell the story of where you've been and the story of the people who are there either working with the, the vines or working with the coffee. And so... Really, you have such a beautiful gift to bring all that together. Thank you for sharing how you also did become interested in photography and capturing the moment and sharing the story, which is fascinating. You had mentioned that you're about to go to South Africa again, and I know that you are always traveling. You had just come back from Costa Rica. Please share with us a little bit more about your upcoming travels and projects. Yeah, I have a lot of great things coming up this fall, and I'm in the process of, you know, finalizing those details right now. But, uh, you know, I'm calling in from the Catskills up in New York State right now because I've been traveling so much, and I just needed to be grounded for two months. And I've been out here two weeks. I'm loving it. (laughs) But I'm secretly already thinking, like, okay, when is my next trip? (laughs) Yes. So so to that point... (laughs) The next, uh, the next big trip is going to be Finland. I did a story on uh, Sweden and one on Denmark, and this is going to kind of mirror that. I did the stories for USA Today. Uh, part of it was 
documenting what, what social life is like there around coffee. Uh, in Sweden, it's very popular to do what they call it, take a fika, F-I-K-A. So fika is not just let's get a coffee, but it's, it's a very ingrained, uh, it's a break, I guess, in American translation, but it doesn't really mean that for them. Um, and then the Finnish also have a strong, as we mentioned earlier, coffee culture. And so I'm going to just kind of see what that's about, uh, visit some coastal areas, also shoot some great photos, hopefully, if the weather bears out, of uh, the wilderness up there, because the wilderness in the Scandinavia is just stunning. It's pretty untouched. Now, there aren't that many people that live up there, a lot of it to do with the weather, unfortunately. I always say if yes. the weather was nicer in Sweden, it wouldn't be so pretty because we'd all move there. But, um, <laughs> but the landscapes there are just, they're beautiful. And there's a serenity to the place. Of course, I haven't been there in the dark of winters. <laughs> I don't know if that holds up in December, but it sure does in the, in the light months. So uh, after Finland, I'm then headed to Burgundy, which I'm super excited about because if you can believe this I've actually never been there uh, oh. and I, when I, <laughs> I I'm admitting it in public on a radio show. <laughs> I've never been to Burgundy but, uh, but you're going. <laughs> yeah you know I, I had an instructor for the master of wine exam once say if you've never been to Burgundy you'll never pass this exam and you know we'll see if he's right in September but uh, it's it is you know, it's a place that has so much history. It's the place that, you know, some, when something has, you have such high expectations in your mind because of its reputation, sometimes it's easier to avoid it because you don't want to be disappointed. Oh, and uh, I know that sounds like a weird thing to say, but, you know, Burgundy from the people who have been is all about aspirations and heartbreak. It's, you know, the wines have gotten extremely expensive because there's a lot of interest from outside investment, outside investors and collectors. And they've gone, you know, in 20 or 30 years from being things that the average person could drink to being basically collectibles. I mean, of course, there's lots of small producers all over the countryside there and eager to have uh, you know, someone come write about them and meet them and taste their wines. But that coupled with the fact that they've had several very terrible vintages, um, not because of the quality of the wine, but because they were small harvests. Uh, they had, I'm sure you can understand, you know, being in agriculture now, if you have a bad harvest, bad weather, you lose half your crop or a third of your crop and that impacts so your, your income for the year. It's farming. That goes back to what I said at the beginning of the show. But, you know, people don't realize wine, it looks glamorous. You're on a farm in high, you know, in Hawaii, it looks glamorous, but it's farming and it's hard work. And there are un a lot of uncontrollable factors that, uh, you know, that can break small businesses. So that's what a yes. lot of these farms are in Burgundy. And the point I'm getting at is, you know, by going over there, the oftentimes they don't have any wine available to taste because they literally need every single bottle in order to right. sell to make income for the year. So, so it's tough, but uh, I'm excited. I'll be in Chablis, Côte Nuit, and uh, Côte de Bonne, tasting from north to south. And then after Burgundy, I'm going to Bolivia. <laughs> so, yes, they have wine oh. in Bolivia. Um, 
Bolivia is an interesting story because they are across from Argentina, their wine country area, and one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to, ever on the planet, is Salta, Argentina. It's in the northwest corner of the state, and it's rugged, it's raw, it's, there's rainstorms and light bursting through the sky and cloud force and then descending into desert. It's just a mishmash of it's it's a it's an incredible landscape. It's hard to even uh, you know, I, I can't even do words put words to it. But I did take photos. So I think yeah. they're on my blog, Chasing the Vine. If you want to go look up Salta, but um, extraordinary landscapes. It's across from Bolivia, and Bolivia happens to be in high altitude growing region, just like Salta is. And altitude, as you know, or rather elevation, uh, it can be critical in the quality in the profile of a wine. So. In the wine world right now with climate change and concerns about heat and drought and um, seasons that are becoming too short or too long because of the changing weather patterns, a lot of winemakers are looking towards higher elevation sites to get that cool factor in the growing season. So elevation, you know, the, the nights are colder and you retain more of that crisp, fresh acidity that people love when they drink a wine um, that makes them want to come back and drink another glass. So Bolivia has one of the highest elevation growing regions in the world. And so there's interesting potential there for uh, red wines, uh, Tanat, Malbec, um, some other grapes are growing up there, as well as some white wines. But, you know, the country itself doesn't have a strong wine tradition. So it, ta- it takes intrepid people to go all the way out there and establish vineyards from nothing. And then when you establish a vineyard, you can't even probably make a bottle of wine until the third or fourth lease. And then, you know, maybe it's eight years before you're really, the vines are hitting their stride and the quality is up. And then, you know, what if you planted the wrong grape and you figure that out eight years later? Oh, true. So it's a a region in flux, but there's a lot, a lot to be excited about there. And you're bringing those stories to your readers and to also to now our listeners who are very inspired to learn more about Bolivia and through your wonderful writings and your photography, you take us there with you. So we wish you a really good trip and thank you for sharing a little bit about your upcoming trips and projects. And I guess before we close, Lauren, we were wondering a little bit for our listeners since you've traveled so much and maybe in a a minute if I could kindly ask you some secrets and tips for listeners who are often wondering how do you make travels go more smoothly what are some of the secrets that is a good question because it seems like every year travel gets more rough (laughs) yes um I you know I hate to say that being a there are, there are arguments on both sides, but being loyal to an airline does have its benefits when proverbial shit hits the fan because if there's yes. flight delays or traffic delays or whatever is going on on the, on the tarmac or the sky, you are first in line to get switched to a better flight. Um, and unfortunately, it's become standard that there's disruptions in airlines constantly. So, um right. I would say being loyal to one airline, I'm not going to name the name because I yes. actually can't stand this airline, but <laughs> it happens to be the one closest to my house. So I fly them, but uh, yes. it, it does help. So there's that. Um, I also always have a carry on kit 
I try to carry on every flight if I can, just because the chance, you know, my itineraries are so crazy and the chance that my bag gets lost means I'm chasing it down from random cities in the middle of the, you know, nowhere. And I may not see it till I get back from the trip. So I usually carry on except when I come back, in which case, I'll usually bring bottles of wine or coffees or things like that. And, you know, who cares when you come back if your bag gets lost for a week? But on the way there, I always carry on. And I also, That's a great if, idea. I do have to check, if I do have to check my bag, last tip, I always carry a change of clothes in my backpack. Um, I wear contacts. I carry you know, a little dot kit that has contact solution, toiletries, whatever the essentials are. Because I swear, every time I bring it, my bag doesn't get lost. If I don't bring the change of clothes, the bag is lost. So it's a good luck charm to always have an overnight bag with you. Those are great secrets. Thank you for sharing with us, Lauren. And thank you for joining us today on My Favorite Coffee Story, talking about for the love of wine and coffee. We really enjoyed your stories, and we really appreciated you joining us today. So thank you, Lauren. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We've had such a nice time talking about sharing stories about the love of wine and coffee all around the world with Lauren and how wine, coffee, food intersect in such a beautiful way. Of course, you can always go to anikona.com for our special listener gift and questions. You can send to orders at anikona.com. Thank you again for being with us on My Favorite Coffee Story, and we look forward to being together again next week. And in the meantime, we wish you a wonderful aloha. Thank you for taking an hour out of your busy week to join us on My Favorite Coffee Story. Please tune in again for another edition with your host, Aniko Samoji, next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, we hope you'll have a relaxing week.